Bem-vindos to one more episode of the Type Theory for All podcast. As always, this is your host, Pedro Abreu, and in this episode, I have the great pleasure to interview Jimmy Koppel. He is a PhD at MIT and founder of The Merding Company, where he teaches engineers to write better code. Join us in this amazing discussion about how to make better code and how the knowledge of computer science theory and programming languages can help engineers to achieve that. So without further ado, let's get into it. So I've seen that you've spent a lot of time thinking about what makes code good code and how can we achieve that in the wild. What are your thoughts? What makes code to be good code and in general? Sure. So that's very broad questions. You know, it's it's kind of like saying like how how do chemicals work? Well, there's an entire field to that. Uh, but but I have to try to say something succinct. You can start by saying so. What are the external qualities you want your code to have? You want it to work. That's first. And um, you want it to satisfy all the requirements, including fun functional requirements and non-functional requirements like. Uh, being performance, but then, so then the the intrinsic qualities of your product, which are extrinsic qualities of the code. So you want it to be understandable, understandable to whom, to yourself and the people who need to read it. Uh, you need we want it to be changeable, changeable for what? For the thing where it is conceivable that you know you might need to change the features that you can't be a thousand percent sure you won't need. And it needs to be robust. It should uh, not have bugs. It should be easy to see there are no bugs. And when you change it, it should be hard to accidentally create bugs. And so then there are the intrinsic qualities, the the facts that get it there, and that's the main thing. Yeah. So what like so what are the things that make it more changeable? Well, so it's uh, it needs to not spread assumptions everywhere. What's an assumption? That's its own topic. It needs to not have a huge amount. Of of places where a single design decision is reflected in many parts of the code. We call it hidden coupling. It needs to stay how it will be open in many things. O openness means that you can conceptually add things to some sets, like I support 10 of these kind of things, I want to support 11, and very few parts of the code should have to change that. So ideally, adjust the place redefining those 11 things. Then robustness. How, how do you get robustness? You, get, you can get robustness when... You have APIs that are hard to misuse. That's most ways of using them that compile are sensible. And that when you do, you're using the wrong way, it's very obvious. There are a bunch of other things. How do you get code to be understandable? It's also a lot of things. It means, you know, it's very easy to see what the intention of code is. And that's, you don't have code work that works by coincidence, where like this thing works, but only if you read through 10 functions and several libraries and you find you know, this one thing you're worried about happening that could mess it up actually can never happen. It means that's, uh, that, that the names are good, that from the name you can easily and correctly infer what that thing is meant to do. And so there's, there's a lot of these for each of those qualities that I mentioned. You've trained quite a few people to write better code. What do you see are the most common hard pieces of code quality to get right? What are the things that are, are, are kind of more, more common to be a bad smell and to be doing things that 
could be better done in different ways. Uh, so I'll answer a slightly different question, which is about the big barrier between a junior and senior engineer. And if I had to pick one thing that's most likely to be the barrier, it's not grokking the implementation interface distinction. Uh, that's the junior engineer kind of sees the code as as it is as code, and they put down a lot of stuff. And if it works, then it works. And actually, I kind of remember. I kind of remember being like this in my early years. Okay, so I mean, well, one of the dumb class examples is when you write to the stream one instead of standard outs because one means standard outs, or is it zero? I don't really remember now, but I definitely did back then. So let's say just one means standard outs for sake of example. And, you know, that would not bother me at all because like, oh, well, surely anyone who's reading this would be like educated and know that one means standard out and get that immediately. Now, if you, if you see that as a piece of knowledge, it's like separate from what's right in front of you. You're like, no, I want to draw as little knowledge as possible. You know, and similar things like, you know, if there's some fine grained facts about how the structure of your data looks, that's obvious to you as a person who wrote the whole damn system, then it doesn't bother you at all if you write code that uses very pervasive, subtle facts about how the data tends to look. And you're like, sure, I just reached five layers in this data structure. And I know the thing will have you form it this way. <laughs> and, and well, at some point, you have to it starts to bother you. And they become strongest when you can very aggressively say, look at a piece of code and say, I'm going to assume, like, even though I wrote all this other stuff, I'm going to assume that, like, that all is going to go crazy at some point and get mutilated in all kinds of ways. And, like, only some basic facts r remain guaranteed to be true. And I'm only going to assume those things when I write this code. And that's the implementation interface distinction. That sounds, that does sound very hard to get right. Because, yeah, once, once you're coding, once you're in, in, into the weeds, you just, you just start, you know, thinking that oh, all of these are trivial, I don't have to care about any of that. And it seems to me that it's this is where it's very important for you to sit back and really plan what you're doing. And I think that's where people like, like you come in and you can have a, a, a good look from the outside and see the, the issues of the code. So how does, how does your coach sessions work? Yeah, so only a small minority of my work these days is in the one-on-one -on -one or small group coaching. Since you know, I've taught this, I've taught this course for five years that it's, several hundred people have gone through. Uh, so nowadays, nowadays when I coach, it's the people who want something they can't get elsewhere, including for my own course. So let's say when, when I first started, I definitely call myself a coach and not a tutor. It's you know, I was inspired by a life coach I'd worked with. I got trained and certified as a life coach. And you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of thinking in my feet, and also sometimes diving into emotional issues or inter interpersonal communication issues that I trained the life coaching stuff to help people with. But but now it's like only a fraction of the, my work is on the interpersonal or communication side. Most is technical, and as I've gotten more crisper and crisper explanations of how to write good code, it has kind of turned more to classic tutoring where. It's like I have these structured concepts, you know, huge pool of them, and I'm trying to convey them to the students. So, so if you picture a really good tutoring session, and I hope it's really good, I'd certainly get people coming back and paying me a lot for it. Then, 
it's like that. But so what are some more distinctive things about being tutored in software design versus being tutored in uh, chemistry? Uh, so, so, so one thing is the ability to draw on a student's own work. Sometimes have them bring them problems at work, usually usually with like simplified idealized code, or once it's in a blue moon, they get permission to bring in the actual code, and we'll work with that. Oftentimes, when I start with a student, I'll have them do some kind of coding challenge design exercise. They'll spend a few hours in it, so I'm going to quickly get a large list of topics that they, that they can improve on just from looking at their code. And a really neat thing I've, that I can do is uh, the design exercise format, where I have someone design a program, not implement, but design a program in front of me, and I'm able to give them live feedback and often make feature requests or request changes to it that are antagonistly chosen to be hard to do because of some design mistake they made. And that's the kind of feedback that might take years to get in the wild and get it in minutes in one of my sessions. I would like to ask, <clears throat> so you've been... You've you've been you've been pretty much part of both worlds, academia and industry, right? And it seems to me that you bring you try to bring as much as possible your in the, your academia knowledge to industry folks. In your point of view, what are the ideas that you learn in academia that you believe that can really help industry people? Well, so a first thing kind of more superficial, but actually quite significant, is to not be afraid of reading papers in primary in primary sources. So I, I do assign a number of papers, especially like classic things like software engineering works from the 70s in my course. And like, yeah, they're probably a lot easier to read than like the average PLDI paper from this year. Uh, but still, I've had a lot of people tell me like, wow, that was like the first time reading an actual academic paper. And I always thought it was like, not it's not something I could do. It's just out of my reality, and bam, now I can do it. So this one I actually haven't really intervened on. I don't think I have not really talked about with students. I don't more people about it. But one thing I definitely wish a lot more industries to do is so one definition I've seen of a scholarly work that's different from research work. Like you can be a scholar without being a researcher is work that's is put into context and cites all the other things that have done before, and. That is something that industry people are extremely bad at. In fact, they often try to do the opposite, where like you go into an open source project and you know, I'm gonna make something up on the spot. Like say it's some kind of streaming library, and they're gonna make up their own ter their own terms for everything. So like maybe they'll call different kinds of streams like rivers and creeks, <laughs> and you no, know, that might corresponds like a certain kind of stream that is either a simple description or maybe you don't have a name, but now I need to learn what a river and creek is just this one library and do this all over the place. And it, it makes it much harder to understand a new framework and much harder to compare. But I think, I think kind of like in, in a, I can, I can see why that may happen. Maybe I'm wrong, but like in, in academia, you have a very strong need to communicate your research, right? So you need to, to put it in terms of, of, what things have, what people have done before, where in industry you really try to sell your thing and like get people hyped, and as much as the the more you can get, you know, like these flashy names and cool things, more people will be hyped. Maybe I don't know. That's what I. <laughs> but I agree with you. That's kind of bad. Yeah, that's like so. I don't feel really prepared to talk about how much it actually works or it benefits. 
But for me as the audience, like I want to be able to quickly evaluate compare frameworks and choosing between them. And you know, if you use the actual language for it, I can very quickly get an idea of whether this thing is going to solve your problem. This is like, you know, and I think that does generalize like maybe like what's certainly different someone who's like an expert in a lot of things and like they've seen ten they've seen uh it's every kind of streaming library before. But I don't know, you can you can get a lot better if you just don't assume that this is the first streaming library your audience has ever seen. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely agree. What about some more technical things in the you know programming languages research in general? Uh, think about some of the big features or things to produce in academia and academic languages. They're still not incorporated into languages. Uh, so it's a really nice thing is that it took, it took uh, 30, 40 years, but we now have major languages that have algebraic data types. Like, it's like Rust and Swift and Scala have them in some form or another. TypeScript almost has them. You can encode, but you can code the, it's like TypeScript has unions, which are different from sums. It's like, you know, most of my career, it's like, you could forget about unions. And now suddenly you have to warn people about unions. They're not the same as sums. But you can encode sums to TypeScript. It's pretty straightforwardly. Uh, if the listener doesn't know, like, you know, a, an int summed with an int is different from int because you know whether it's the left thing or the right thing. But int union is int. It's the same as an int. Mm. I think the big thing missing for most languages is... Uh, proper support for existential types and true modules. So oh, the, the ML style modules or true module theoretic modules are still something that's unique to the ML family of languages. And only some of them, like F sharp doesn't have them. I think Elm doesn't have them. Uh, but OCaml and, and SML do. And, but I think it's a very important concept that we often emulate by a gentleman's agreement in all their languages. So... There's a couple aspects to this. So, so one is the the ability to change an implementation of another components that you rely on. Actually, in one of my Haskell projects, I have a thing where we can switch between the single-threaded and multi-threaded version of uh, a memoization library. And to do that, basically need ifdefs. Probably could do it with type classes, but it's like... Actually, I think there might be some performance overhead if if I do it that way. It's like like in 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 an ML language, it could be be so easy. And Haskell does have kind of have like a very weak support for modules, but like they did all this work to put modules in Haskell, and they mess it up by putting the build system instead of the language. So you can only do it like across package boundaries, not across module boundaries. But the other thing, which I think it's gonna be harder to put into languages that don't have any kind of theorem proving support, is to you decide exactly what information is hidden within a module. So example that I use a lot is sanitize strings. Like which modules are allowed to know that for a string to be sanitized means that it just, it has all quotes escaped. And it's basically a gentleman's agreement. So like, you know, in some, some, some parts of code base, you're allowed to like index in the string directly and do these things and other parts you're not. But that's something that's, I think... We could see a lot better support for that kind of thing. Maybe not like full control over what facts are usable, what parts of the code base, but like f finer grain, 
finer, some finer grain control about like these operations are permissible in this part, not others, and like much finer grain than the oh everything's public everywhere to everyone or private to everyone kind of acts control that we have today. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't want to put you on the spot in this question. It's okay if you don't if you haven't thought too much about this, but. How does these things compare in an OO language, say like Java? Oh, <laughs> not thought about it. No, I know a lot about this. So and a lot of these answers are going to be found. It's a paper by my undergrad advisor, Jonathan Aldrich, called The Power of Interoperability, Why Objects Are Inevitable. And it does a great explanation of comparing functors, that is, modules, that can depend on variants, other modules with objects. Uh, so one topic I like a lot is object encodings, which is how do you take the idea of an object and turn it into the basic type three constructs of existential and recursive types and products. And I think it's really illuminating when you do that. And then you can see exactly, then, then you can start to imagine like all the variants of object systems and you can see exactly how it compares to modules. And you can see the ways that objects are kind of more flexible, most of the time too flexible for their own good, and the ways which they're restricted. So I don't go over both of them. So restricted, probably the biggest thing is that an object is tied to a value. Like you have a virtual function table and it's tied to a value. And this is distinct from say type classes, which are very close to objects, except that the virtual function table travels separately. So you can write a function of type A to A to A with a type class, but you can't probably do that with an object. Okay, we can. You can use something more complicated called f-bound polymorphs. If you want to write a, a number class where you get a float as a number, it can be added to a float, and an int as a number, can be added to an int, but you can't add them to each other. Or I guess more realistically, like you would want to do that for like a an int versus a matrix. Uh, you can do that with f-bound polymorphism, uh, but... I'm not even sure that's uh okay. No, I take the back. Yeah. Okay. So the okay. Well, okay. So the binary function thing is a solved problem. What's not a solved? What you can't do with objects though, is that the constructors, the constructors have to be separate. And that's basically the reason that factories exist. Is that? So I'm going back to my example so earlier of the concurrent versus single threaded memoization. Like if you did that with objects. You need to have separate code that calls the the single threaded memoization uh, um, table constructor, or in separate code that causes calls the multi threaded one, and then from there everything else could use an object, which is one or the other, you don't know which, but the code constructing them has to be separate, and then or it can create a separate object which is a factory, and then you still need a place to choose the factory, and then. It's actually kind of difficult. You want to tie the factory and the implementation together. It's like, say, this thing's a factory for this kind of thing, this is a factory for that kind of thing. Objects don't make that easy. So that's the constructor issue. And then there's the restriction issue, uh, which is there's a great line from the paper, one of my favorites all time, On Data Abstraction Revisited. Let me check that title. On understanding data abstraction revisited by the white William Cook, who is your grand advisor, I believe. It's a great line that is um, objects let you override arbitrary code paths, 
They're designed to be as flexible as possible. It's almost like they're designed to be as difficult to verify as possible. Like an object is meant to be like a single thing that deals with everything else by their interfaces. And that's what you want in a plugin system. That's what you want in like an extensible GUI system and things like that. But it's not what you want for most things. And so you're getting all this extra flexibility, which is actually a bad thing if you're using objects to get your, to what's called dynamic architecture, meaning that it's not exactly determined which components connects to which other components. It's, I think I think it's 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 interesting how you know in the I'm not saying the '90s there was a huge hype over object-oriented languages. Even like I think Opsla was more or less created more around that time, and it was a big a big big conference. And nowadays, even Opsla is slowly shifting towards more other kinds of verification and and object-oriented languages. Research in particular is is losing a lot of traction, and there is a lot of discussion on the trade offs between between all of that. So yeah, there's a there's a <laughs> it'll be a whole topic on on its own. Um, but talking talking about you know like this shift towards you know a more formal methods or or. Yeah, the shift in interest in formal methods and, and and type systems and and even even verification in general, right? How do you think this 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 all of all of this can be can be used by the average software engineering? Um, what are the tools do you think are worth or that we're gonna see more in the software engineering industry in the future? Yeah, so, no, I would have been more prepared to answer that a few months ago, given that with the rapid progress of AI, say the future, what software will look like, I think is kind of uncertain right true. now. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> so, it's, you know, it's, it's things like, you know, maybe it's like, maybe you can't get an AI to write flexible, easy to evolve code. But if you can get it to write a lot of code, then making then you know making the code easier to change kind of seems less important. Well, let's let's pretend we're recording this before AI this these kinds of AIs oh, existed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go to yes. Let's go to yesterday's future. No, yeah. That's, that's so for yesterday's for yesterday's future. Uh, so I think the trend of of the answer more expressive types becoming more and more mainstream is going to continue. So like I do see, and I do see this with, well, so first, um, the, the idea of dynamic typing is way very out of fashion where increasing fraction of Python is now, is now typed, uh, JavaScript's giving way to TypeScript and TypeScript has in some ways the fanciest type system of any major language. It's more fancier in a lot of ways than Haskell. Actually, my business partner, Nils, has a blog post uh, where he created tic-tac-toe in the TypeScript type system. That is, like, you uh, you instantiate a type, you pass some subtype parameters corresponding to tic-tac-toe moves, and then you mouse over some things, and the type inference tells you the current state of the board. Then that's obviously just a demonstration of how extreme you can get. But 
I think like more more I think more precise and flow sensitive types are going to become more common, both as more languages offer support for them and more people learn how to use them. I don't see them becoming dominant soon, but I think, but I think sophisticated static checkers and model checkers are going to become more common. So actually, I I kind of saw this recently when um, Dejin Park, who was a PhD student student at uh, at Illinois, now works for Andreas and Horowitz in their crypto arm, released a a small execution engine for Solidity for blockchain. And like, just watch the reception he gets. It's like, you know, ten ten years ago, released sort of thing, and be on a big outcry about about how form methods are overkill and or silly or like not solving the real problems. But no, it's like everyone's like, yeah, this is great. More of this. It used to be you talk about static analysis online, everyone assumes you mean the lender, and it used. To, and it used to be that's like no one in history knew what Z3 was for SMT solving. And now you're like, read. It's like, you know, I've been on Hacker News since it came out like 15 years ago, and it's been a shift. Those things are really exciting. Do you know what this, what kind of form, um, what kind of formal methods more specifically they use for, for the blockchain technology? So I, so I know some of what's available, but I don't know their penetration. Uh, so, Sertora and Viridice are two major players in this space. It's actually, actually, it's kind of a joke right now. It seems that like large fraction of PL professors are founding blockchain <laughs> verification companies. So you have Ishil Dillig at UT Austin with Viridice. Uh, you have Gregory Roshu at Illinois with runtime verification. Uh, you have Jongshan at Yale with Certic. Like, although like they're mostly, I mean, they're mostly a, sh- a sh- they're mostly a shop where they have several hundred people in China doing manual audits. But they also do some verification, and and then you have uh, Muli Sagiv in Israel with Sertora, which has like forty million raised and seventy people. Uh, so I can't speak as to how much mar- well, the market they have, but I do know Sertora's websites brags about how the their customers have several billion dollars of assets under management. I just see this. Do you think that's that's a good thing for formal methods research in general? Or do you think that, I don't know, maybe it's becoming a little too going towards the, the wrong course? Well, for, for contrast, there, there are also hacks in traditional finance, like the SWIFT protocol seems to get hacked a lot. That's a, why aren't they using this stuff? So... No, like like all these kinds of programs are very high stakes applications, very attractive for hackers that could benefit this kind of technology, and and it's great that the blockchain world has at least in the short term uh, been making formal methods cool and pumping a bunch of money into it. It's like it's not it's not a very diversified customer base if they're the only ones pumping money into formal methods, but it is a customer base and it's great. Right. I like I like that. I, I hadn't I hadn't thought on those terms particularly because yes, there there are many other other kinds of assurance that you can get for driving your software towards as correct as possible. And I might be wrong, but I don't think formal methods. The, our research in formal methods is there yet. We're kind of like young applying this technology, right? That's 
that's a good point, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of sucks to say that given the community has been around for several decades. I think Cav was started in the 80s. That's... Well, technically, all of this started with church, which started computer science itself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it depends how broad you want to catch yeah. that. It's, uh... So going... So circling back to this just notion that you said that types, uh, you know, like dynamic languages are growing out of fashion. Do you think then that type systems definitely helps to better to write better code and prevent errors? Uh, in the right hands, absolutely. Like they're, you know, it's it's kind of tautological. It's like saying do rail do railings help people falling off stairs? Yes, <laughs> and there's like. You know, you can be doing experiments where you have someone run towards the edge of stairs with, without a railing. It might hurt in both cases, but where they fall off is different. <laughs> <laughs> I like that analogy. It's, it's a pretty good analogy. Um, well, you have you also have this, this, well, you have many articles on our website that I definitely recommend the listener to take a look at. There are some pretty cool stuff there. In one of them, you go through a few branches of what you call theory. Well, yeah, theory, program, computer science theory. There are a couple of branches in theory that you you give some, some thoughts on why or why not programmers should learn about them. In particular, you mentioned there type theory, program and analysis, program synthesis, formal verification, category theory. Could we go through uh, these and have sure. some thoughts on why do you think they might be useful or not? Yeah, absolutely. So this is my blog post, Why Programmers Should, int, in parentheses, learn theory. And it's about kind of what I call software engineering theory. It's like this parts from what I in the PL that are, I think, relevant to software engineering, as a sync from what goes in labeled computer science theory, where you talk about um, randomized algorithms and computability and complexity and that's... Uh, you know, and uh, the statistical power of different learning algorithms. This is the kind of theory I think is applicable to all kinds of software. So what are the ones that you think are, are the most useful and why? So so the five areas that I identified were type theory, verification, type theory, verification, category theory, program analysis, and synthesis. And synthesis. Yes. And without a doubt, of all those said type theory. And the reason is that type theory, it, it structures how you write programs and how you can write programs. You get your language dynamic, then you can still impose a type stem onto the language that describes the structure of constraints that is already there that you're already following as you write your code. And understanding that is very powerful. Don't, don't you think that that's a little too hard to learn like that? Or do you think it's a, it's, it's, the time well spent. Like, do I think that what is too hard? Do I think, uh, do I think that it's too hard to understand what a product is, um, and that's, and that both tuples and and structures are products and they can be they're interchangeable. No, I don't think that's too hard. Do I think it's too hard to, uh, do I think it's too hard to understand the lambda mu calculus? and how to do cut elimination in the presence of continuations. I don't know if it's too hard, but I think most people won't care enough to do it, <laughs> yeah. even though even though it's even though it has some super cool results. Do I think do I think it's too hard to 
Let's see. Do I think it's too hard to understand to, to understand uh, John Reynolds' abstraction theorem and ha- how to perform theorems for free? Well, I it took me about three attempts before I succeeded in understanding it. And I, I only still understood the Philip Waterloo version and not the original John Reynolds, which still haven't attempted. So yes, I do think that's too hard. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me feel better because I'm still trying to to, to understand that. I I'm almost there. I I feel. <laughs> Uh, so you also asked, sent an email, tell us a practical example of how theory has helped your clients. So, so I certainly have my own speculation. I can talk about how it's helped me and how I think it's helped people. But I did ask this to a few people and got a couple answers. So it's one of my students told me last night when I asked him this. That's uh, he, So he still doesn't know much theory. But he said, well, there's a general thing about learning any theory that helps structure your thoughts. And I hope you understand the subject better. But he actually brought up that long before he met me, he learned loop invariance in college as a sophomore. And he said, like, it gave him this power to understand loops and how to debug code with loops that some of his friends didn't have. You know, like, he had a friend, like, with a pretty complicated function that had a loop, and who's, like, clearly n- not understanding how it's supposed to be done. And he told his friends, like, think about the loop invariance and taught him that. Another answer I got, some people have talked about using a shorthand version of pre and post conditions like you see in horror logic. So like I teach people about hidden coupling. It's like when things change because they have some shared design decision, but they don't actually reference each other. And but often when you write down the pre and post conditions of the code, then their coupling becomes more clear. So one of my students said that he's been using that in pull requests to, to show with this hidden coupling. But more generally, he also says that it's like he has this four foundation that he can set off and learn. So, so I, I mentioned earlier how mo- true modules and like talking about what facts may be accessed by different parts of code. It's a very important idea a lot of people understand. But really, that's powered by existential types. So this, the same student says, like, he still doesn't fully understand existential types, but, like, I've given him the foundation for him to continue exploring on his own. T- teach a fish. Teach a person to fish. Don't teach a fish. <laughs> the thing I can say is that for for my equality constraint tree automata paper, this new kind of solver I have is very good at certain kinds of synthesis problems. There was a piece of it where I, where I hired um, a, a a contractor to help with it. The contractor is Edsko de Vries. He did such a good job that he became a co-author because he contributed a core piece that makes their thing much more general. Uh, but even for his normal code, he was he was brought in to do performance optimization first and foremost. And and as he's doing this, it's like it's very clear that someone without this kind of background could not have done the work he did. It's like uh, so. Like we have this complicated data structure, and he's switching it to this other form, and he needs to, needs to show that's going to be equivalent to, to the original form and not mix things up um, while also being more performance. And like he actually put proofs in the comments, oh, wow. equational reasoning proofs, showing that this thing worked properly. Yeah. And I think it would have been hard to write this code without that, and I think that's just outside the abilities of most programmers. But this is not just like learning a bit of theory. This is he actually has a PhD. Right. <laughs> but it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool application of this knowledge in the industry. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Type theory 
definitely can give you a lot of that's that's usually how I, I I describe my research to other you know like other areas of computer science. What do you do? Well, I study programs in general and what makes how can we reason about them in general? You know, like how can what can we abstract away all of this noise of different syntax of these discussions of should we be using brackets or tabs or one or two spaces? That that's that that's that's useless. We don't, that's not that's not interesting. What actually makes what's the essence behind the programming language? And I think that's what you achieve in type theory, and and that's what we try to study. And so I def I definitely agree with you that it's it can be very very useful for the for the average programmer to learn. I'm I'm just sometimes I feel that I don't know maybe you can you have to go a little a little bit too deep to to really really get. Um, the feeling of why this is this is interesting, why you should care about this, right? But I definitely, I definitely think that people should should try at least. Yeah, yeah. and I, I don't think, you know, I don't, I don't think that's the case. Like, I think like the basic type theory are rather simple, right. uh, and you know, I, I think it could be taught to a lot of high schoolers. Even even with the formal rules, and I think it pays some dividends pretty quickly. Now, like in contrast, in the same blog post, I talk about uh, Cox style verification, which is basically the more advanced dependent type theory. And I think there's also a lot of value from being being able to explicitly prove theorems approximate about your program and see them as distinct from the program itself. It goes back to what I was talking earlier about the implementation interface. Distinction, and I think to fully understand that, it's really hard without having done some work in Cock or a similar tool. Uh, but to get there, you're also going to have to learn a lot about about tactics and um, type versus prop, and a lot of other things that is a ton of of burden before you get to like the bits that that philosophically carry over to everyday engineering. And so for that. You know, I don't think the trade-off is, is worth it, and I think it could be. And I still haven't really learned Lean. Maybe it's maybe you can get to there faster with Lean. Uh, you can write a, a new tool that's just like that's just the intuition for software engineering relevant parts. But you know, my exposure to verification is like you no, know, it's like a few hundred. I have a few hundred hours in clock, and I'm still feel like a new. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Do you think there are any of these tools for, you know, maybe some sort of formal verification, even, even th synthesis that it's worth checking out, you know, like the average programmer to, to try and learn and, and, and study a little more? Huh. Or maybe even using it in their uh, project. Well, I said earlier that people should understand ML module systems. So I'm always learning SML or CAMEL. Uh, turn to actual checkers or verification tools. Z3, I think, is a lot of bang for the buck. It's useful in a lot of things. You know, that, that's also, you know, that's also kind of like saying that uh, that someone should learn how to use any other kind of solver. Like, yeah, there's a decent chance that, okay, so... When I had, had an internship at a hedge fund in 2011, the very last thing I did, I used an actual linear programming solver because 
there was something with had a brute force optimizer and it's replaced it with this linear programming engine. And it's great they knew how to do that, but that was not actually deep. And I think I think most users of Z3 would be the same way. So even though it's like like a tool that came out of kind of PL and automated theorem proving stuff, its uses would just be like random stuff everywhere. But but once you learn a Z3, it's only a small extra step to learn about how to encode a program into Z3. And so even if you don't actually wind up using that, I think being able to do that is still very cool. And so like in my strange loop talk where I that's a you know, this section where I try to teach that conditionals are a logical notion and not a syntactic one. You know, and I show that's like pretty much determines what the conditional is in if you create a Z3 formula encoding the, encoding the relevant part of your program, if you don't have a way to encode it, that's not a logical, the logical formula that's not a conditional, then, then you haven't limited a conditional. My, my, my biggest issue with, say, Z3 is, I, I agree, it's not too hard to use, but it's extremely hard to debug. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, I can't say I've run in, into that before. Okay. Well, actually, actually, well, we'll say if you're if you have a verification condition generator, and you have a twenty line program generating a hundred line formula for, then that is that is not an all good way to debug what goes wrong. <laughs> yeah. So, you've done you've done some some work with with program synthesis in your in your PhD. How do you see the, that 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 field, in the sense of? Going forward towards the future, how do you see it, it maturing and being used in general? And and what are your thoughts about program synthesis? Uh, so I actually don't feel very up to date on the field right now. As uh, so, well, so what first one thing is that it's turned into an AI field. Right. There are now more there are now more synthesis papers published in AI conferences. It's been a case for several years, and more synthesis papers published in AI conferences than in PL conferences. And it's not quite a fair comparison because it's like the PL papers are usually bigger, quite literally. It's like often three times many pages. Uh, but I think it's, that was probably true even without that. And then we get to the old gripes about uh, they're not citing. We were here first. We did all the cool stuff. They're not citing us. But anyway, I mostly don't read the AI papers yet. So I'm not really quick to speak about what's going on there. On the PL side, I'm also kind of out of touch. You know, like also particularly like I'm a year and a half out of grad school. I read, you know, I don't read no papers, but much, much less than I used to. And and even still, like synthesis is never my core area. It's always but uh, what I call meta meta programming. What is that? Which yeah, so oh, meta meta programming is um, is pro is making tools easier to build and more general. And it is a less charitable thing is that it's a pretentious way to say software language and to say software language engineering, which is an established field. But it's basically, I think the things going to that label tend not to be like language workbenches and to not be cool <laughs> enough. So in meta meta programming for the stuff that involves some very fancy representations and some fancy search and solvers in order to generate tools to make tools very general. So core example of this is a uh, is my mandate paper automatically deriving control flow generates from arbitrary semantics so control flow graph is a graph saying the order that stuff happens in a program or could happen all possible paths in this control flow graph 
So every compiler will have a control flow graph generator, which takes a program, gives you a control flow graph for it. And I built the world's first control flow graph generator generator, which takes in the operational semantics of a programming language and generates a control flow graph generator for that language. Wow. And that is meta. That is, that is super cool, actually. And what, what, how, how do you write down the, the operational semantics for, for a language in that tool? Very carefully. Uh, well, so, uh, so it uses structural operational semantics, like Gordon block in seventies standard thing. Uh, we have, you know, it's a data type. So we have a, we have a data type for writing these down and that for, creates an embedded DSL for it. So it's pretty standard stuff. The, the main twist is that in this tool, SOS actually stands for not for structural operational semantics, but straight into operational semantics, where I've taken the normal inference rule notation and I've basically replaced it with nested left with nested let bindings. Oh. And this gives an ordering and a structure to the rules that makes them easier to work gotcha. with. That's very interesting. And then, and then you can generate the, so yeah, you, you generate a control flow graph generator for this language. And I remember seeing something about generating things for, for many different languages. Um, so what, what languages can you apply this to any language at all? Uh, so there are some restrictions in the form of the rules and some of that's kind of innate to the approach. So actually, this might surprise people that many languages don't have control flow graphs. In fact, there is no such thing as control flow graph for C. Really? Yes, and the reason is that the reason is that evaluation order is unspecified. So if you have a big nested expression, you know, like a plus a plus b plus c plus d plus, plus e and like lots of parentheses all over the place you can jump back and forth arbitrarily evaluating different this parts in different order it actually has a concurrent a concurrent semantics and with that there is no such thing as the current program points in fact even if c didn't have threads you could actually you could actually encode threads into its into its arithmetic just because it's allowed to jump back and forth. Now, it might not actually compile with interleads fashion, but the semantics allow it to do so. That's crazy. So, yeah. So because of that, C, within the expression, within expressions, so at the statement level, it does have a current, current control point. Actually, so, yes, I guess I lied. Um, in mandates, you can, there's an option you can configure it to skip overall expressions. That is, say, all expressions abstract to just there going to be some value. And we, with that, then the, all the non-termism will get eliminated. Uh, but at, but at the, if you do include the expression level, there's no such thing as a current control flow point. So instead, you need a, a PetriNet called a C of nodes reputation to properly model the control flow. So that's one limitation mandate, which is more intrinsic, that you have this kind of non-terminism, uh, then, there's, then there's no current control control point. And so this really properly is no such thing as control graph for that language. There are some more arbitrary restrictions, such as, so basically I was kind of lazy when implementing the, re the rewriting engine. So mandate's heavily steeped in term writing theory. And 
like the proper tools like mod m-a-u-d-e can uh can deal with like lists inside of maps inside of trees inside of maps and so on but my tool can't and if your program state is very complicated as it will be for any real language then you'll have that kind yeah, of rewrite thing. theory is actually is actually a very interesting branch of of bl i think because a lot it was I, I was surprised one time that i got that i that i put my hands in a rewrite theory book and a lot of the problems that i was trying to solve was already there like in the first few pages <laughs> <Both>. <laughs> so yeah it's it's a, it's a it's a cool branch but um so in our private communications, you mentioned that there 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 were a paper that you, you submitted like many many times. Was it related to this tool? Yes, uh, th this is the paper that took nine submissions. Nine submissions. In. Wow, that's that's insane. And you are still in grad school when you were doing that. Uh, that's right. Actually, so it was not accepted until until after I graduated, actually. And so, so one of the very important piece of advice that I got from Martin Reinhard at MIT is he says, like, to get papers in, just roll the dice more. Wow. If you think your paper is good enough that it doesn't need revision, then just try to minimize the effort to resubmit and just resubmit more and, and wait. And so I followed that advice. So I stopped submitting to PLDI because PLDI had a different format and a much shorter page limit. And so it would have been a lot of work to, like, switch submissions for to be in PLDI length and switch it back if it got rejected. So I just did my submissions to ICFP and Popple each year for several years. And, and something interesting happened. Submission number eight was to Popple 2022. And, and its scores were actually, I think, I think, among the worst of any of these submissions. So in the second to last submission, it got uh, BCC. That's two week rejects, one week accepts. I'm not sure I should change a single word when I resubmit to ICFP that year. But it got, they were on a one to five scale, so it got four, four, five, <laughs> accept, accept, <laughs> strong accepts. And then after, and then after rebuttal was changed to five, five, well, five, strong accept, strong accept, strong accept. Those were, they were basically the same submission. And, but it was just roll the dice again with who was reviewing it. Wow. And it's not to say the superiority of ICFP over right. Popple because I have had other ICFP submissions in previous years where I I got low quality reviews. Actually, like and I remember I remember one submission where this guy so part part so part of the process of turning a semantics trophograph is it turns the semantics into an abstract machine first. And there's this guy, Danvey, who's that's kind of been his thing in his space. He's done a lot of work in that area. And, you know, so I've read a bunch of his papers and I cited a bunch of them. But then, you know, but then this one, this one reviewer, ICP, this is 2020, 2019, 2020, I think, uh, said, well, well, there's this one Danvey paper, one of the ones they hadn't read. And doesn't he do that part of the paper already? How is it different? And so I read during the rebuttal period. I read that paper and I wrote a long description uh, explaining like how it's totally different and doesn't come anywhere close to what we do. And I'm pretty sure the reviewer did not read my rebuttal <laughs> at all. Not that part. And it's like, oh well, clearly you need a lot more to explain it. 
Yeah. So, yeah, actually, this must have been ICP 2019 because it was later in 2019 that I actually met Danvi in Singapore. And so I was actually able to include a sentence in the paper saying what, what he thinks of it. Uh, and to preempt criticism of, well, didn't he Those do this already? Really, really hard. I mean, I don't know, man. I feel that academia right now is in a really weird spot because there's just so many people going to grad school that wasn't doesn't that doesn't seem like it was like this before. And we have this huge problem of scaling for publishing and how and 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 what can we do about those things. So like our, our problems that are kind of open for us to solve. And what I mean by us is, you know, like us next generation of researchers. I I think that's my view. But um it seems to me that you are kind of slowly migrating out of academia. Is that the case or do you plan to do something uh I mean I mean I'm mostly out. Like I went through grad school as a grad student with with a foot in the startup worlds and now I'm well, kind of the startup world, but generally in the software world, the industry is software world, but still a foot in the in academia. It's kind of flipped. Uh and like I'm, I'm basically out, but you know, I still attend my old, my old lab meetings. That's a, uh, I am, uh, I still like to visit universities and give talks when I travel. It's like, you know, it's like the, you know, it might take several years before that talk really starts getting stale and people know it already. <laughs> it's like, uh, so. So, so next month, I'm going to the Ilko Visser Commander Symposium for a professor who's, I mentioned like my meta-meta programming, I just kind of see as like the cool parts or the cooler cooler stuff and the same goals as software language engineering. So one of the giant software language engineering, Ilko Visser, uh, just had a stroke and suddenly was found dead on the sidewalk about one year oh, ago. Sorry. So I'm So I'm going to his memorial where... People will give talks about him and about things he would have been interested in. So I have a small paper there. It's like something I did years ago, but never wrote up. And then afterwards, I'll be visiting a bunch of other universities in Europe and speaking about my work there. So like, like I still do that kind of thing. Um, I I still have a, still have a few collaborators where I do a small amount of work, but most supervise them. So. Actually, we got a paper into ICST, International Conference on Software Testing, um, where the last big thing I did in grad school, uh, the it's basically a new kind of solver that's really good at a bunch of problems. So we used it to generate test, uh, properties for property-based tests and got that paper in. So like 90% of the work was done by my collaborator, Matthias, but you know, I still would say... Well, it's a last author paper for me, <laughs> and uh, there's and uh, like there's one other project I'm on that's also about a related topic. The solver is based on tree automata. It's another tree automata paper I'm on. Actually, two of them. So, so I still have a few collaborations like that where I'm kind of taking advisory. That's role. nice. That's pretty good. I feel. I mean, I feel. I feel like there's so much pressure. Like once you're inside academia, there's so much pressure for you to publish that I don't feel that it's necessarily, you're necessarily doing, you know, like impactful work that you could, if you had more time or more leisure, you know, because you're so pressured to do those stuff. So I think that maybe 
people like like you can have you know even more impact actually in academia because of that well so I, I mean, that does connect to my thoughts like one thought is that linux has done more for the state of soft engineering art than a full decade's worth of ICSI papers so there's the direct impact of software engineering and that sort of thing. Another thing is the amount of boilerplate container that needs to come up, go with a small kernel of an idea. So if you have an insight, you can build a new thing that's successful at that. You've done only a fraction, the most important part of the work to the paper, but only a fraction of it. Because you still need to write the paper, write it very thoroughly. Actually, I mean, that, that part's probably probably good. You also need to do experiments, even if it should be obvious to someone who understands it that your thing works well. You still, you still need to defeat the laziest, most critical uh, uh, reviewer. You need to compare it to everything. So you need, you know, you need related work, which, you know, it's something I always took very seriously. One of my papers has uh, cites about ninety other papers because it's about semantic code search. It's kind of a broad term, but done a lot. And so I had to skim through about 70 other semantic code search papers to compare mine. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's a, oh yeah, actually I got very, very fast at that. Like set, set a seven and a half minute timer, my goal. And my goal in that seven and a half minutes is to read enough the intro and the overview section that could write a paragraph about what it does. Just do that over and over. It, even if I need to read to set a second and a half minute timer, I'm still one. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that's uh, say doing research with a very effective printer. We can print out stacks of these papers. It's a very good thing. <laughs> so go to go to university that does not skip on printers. Uh, that's good. Most most of my reading is actually done in my uh, virtually in an iPad or something like that. But I feel yeah, it's just it's just so much better to actually have the the paper on your hands. Uh. Uh, anyway, yeah. So, so this case in point of this is the field of linguistic anti-patterns. So, so this professor, I think Arne Dova, thinks the name, who uh, decided to study this thing called linguistic anti-patterns of like certain certain structured ways of bad names. And so, so what? Are the, so, all right. So say you went to do this, you would find certain structured bad names. What do you need to do? Well, uh, you need to talk about other kind of anti-patterns and compare it, which that sounds like not an easy writing task because it's different. You need to define your anti-patterns, and you need to be able to say their prevalence. So that means that you need to write, either be reading a lot of code very carefully, a lot of understanding, or make them simple enough and then write a scanner for it and still review a lot of code to find instances. And you want to talk about like what fraction of a code base is going to have these anti-patterns. You want to talk, maybe want to run a study about how it, if it affects people. And there's a lot of things that go into creating a publication and they're differing value. It's like the core idea is most important than the implementation a lot of the experiments like, are the same amount of... Some of the experiments are very valuable. They really could prove it works. Some of them are really not valuable. Like They don't really add information about how good your thing is compared to the state of the art, but they do defeat lazy reviewers who think he will, you know, 
like like a big thing I learned is that you know like there's a it's kind of knee jerk reaction for viewers where like you say certain words they'll bring you certain criticism <laughs> right like like you know you say the word correctness the wrong way someone's gonna gonna ask you to verify and <sighs> clock if you're in a PL conference yeah. uh, it's like no this thing's already forty pages it's gonna be second paper that's a uh, you know, if you mention a limitation has someone, someone is likely to harp on that as actually being a much bigger deal than it is. Uh, so, you know, okay. So one limit, one thing in, in mandate, um, I know I mentioned earlier that it's that when there's non-determinism, then there's, when there's non, when, okay, not non non-determinism. This is separately. So related to non-determinism is when a single separate program actually involves uh, ch- executing two parts of the program, not just interleave, but actually simultaneously. So, you know, it's like, imagine, like, imagine, I know, like, like, I guess you could have this, a real example would be like a barrier. You say, like, but at the same time, all threads are going to pass through. And you write that into your semantics. That's like a single step is many things happen, not interleave, but at this literally at the same time. So if that happens, then you would get what I call an up-down rule. Uh, so, so the only thing you know about the up-down rule is that, like, they describe situations like that, where multiple things happen simultaneously at different points of the program. And so this is kind of kind of niche, and it makes sense that we cannot do it with an up-down rule. So I mentioned this, and a reviewer said, well, clearly you need, well, this is bad because you need up-down rules to write language semantics. And, like, a, no, you don't. B, why do you think that? This is a term I made up that only makes sense in the context of this one formalism I used here, where you, can, where you have the up and down arrows. And you see the up and down arrows in the same rule. Uh, it's like you have no idea what this means because I just made up this term. It is not even not a, even even a useful concept outside of the context of this paper. You have no idea what this means. How can you possibly say that? <laughs> but I say it's limitation, knee jerk reaction. Uh, okay, so where was I? Before I, went, before I went down that tangent. We were, uh, we were talking about how being outside of academia might... Oh, yes, yes, sorry. So I was talking about listing anti-patterns. But yeah, so I was, I was talking, you know, so that example, like, the kind of why... That kind of that kind of, of, of phenomenon cause you spend a lot of work on experiments which are actually not that much valuable. They're actually not that valuable. So, so the existing academic work on listing anti-patterns... What they did to produce them publishable, and uh, they chose like a list of about nineteen hyper-specific anti-patterns of the form like this function is named get something, but it does not return a value. Hyper-specific. This function name is something, but it doesn't return a boolean. And then, so that's the kind of things in their list of nineteen, and then they can write a scanner for that. They can look for examples. They can do experiments where they see how much it actually confuses people. They can check all the boxes that you need. But I I like this idea, but I did not like the implementation. So I just created the website linguisticantipatterns.com. And we created our own list of antipatterns. We did not jump through the same hoops as them. So we just gave the anti-antipattern called like name type mismatch that actually covers a large fraction of the original 19. And what do we do for that? We give, we give a few examples, and people can understand that and apply it in their work. And maybe it's a lot harder to like do a study where we see how many name type mismatches are in a code base 
that's hard if you don't understand the code base. But I think what we did is ultimately more useful and impactful. And that's so instead of this list of 19, that's hyper specific. We have this list of six, that's kind of where each one's kind of broad. And we can give a few strong examples of where it's hurt people in the past and people can learn from it. That's pretty cool. That's very nice, true. I didn't have the chance to look, to look at that. But um, I saw I saw also your, your blog post on, on the sources of power, which I liked a lot. And I wanted to, mm. to bring that up because, okay, so if I understand correctly, the, the idea, uh, by the way, sorry, I'm changing the, sh the subject. Was there anything else you were going to, mm -hmm. you're going to mention? No. On that? Uh, yeah, no, I finished that story. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, sources of power. So if I understand correctly, you should be looking for, for things like to stand out in life, in your career, you should be looking for things that, um, people are not doing, but it's worth doing. So people didn't notice that it's worth doing, but. You did, so you go ahead and, and do that, and and it's probably lead you somewhere somewhere nice, somewhere somewhere well. And I feel that that's yeah. kind of I, I really I really like that because it's how I feel about this podcast because I really wanted the type theory podcast and nobody was doing it. And I'm like, okay, just do it, whatever. <laughs> and yeah, it's going to become much easier to become known to be known in the research world by having this podcast than by. Um, going to lots of conferences, giving a lot of talks, writing a lot of papers, uh, publicizing your papers well, writing even writing blog yeah. posts. All those things are way more competitive than a podcast that's actually aimed uh, in significant part at at researchers. I wanted to ask you then, what have you? What what are what are your stories about finding your sources of power? I mean, I think my business overall doing advanced general training for software engineers. It's like, well, like a lot of things I write about, I'm kind of the first to write about it. But it's also true that often when I explain my ideas to PL academic, they can understand it way faster than even extremely senior industry people. Uh, so like, I don't th like a lot of the insights I've had, I don't think I'm the only one who's had them. Uh, you know, certainly like a lot of PL professors can go on their own rants about what they think software quality should be based on their understanding. And some of them would say similar to what I say. And certainly when I first started, it's like a lot of what I've come up with is since I started doing, since I started teaching it. So like a lot of other people could have started on this path, but I'm the one who did. But, you know, so here I'm sitting in a very comfortable space in a sp like a market that's very valuable, very competitive. I think that, I think that itself counts. Yeah. And so uh, when I applied for the TL fellowship over a decade ago, um, like motivated me was so uncommon they thought it was disproportionately valuable to how competitive it was that it was a new thing still had a lot of stigma but it came hundred thousand dollars and like fame and glory and a great network and and so i applied what fellowship one. is this this is the 20 under 20 teal fellowship it's where peter teal paid young people under thousand dollars drop out of school which in my case i just graduated and that's early. it all they have to do is to drop out of school well, yeah, it's it's called the drop at a school and start a company. Oh, and start, okay. That's pretty ah, accurate. Okay. You're, yeah, you are expected, you're expected to be like working on some great world changing project, which for most people meant a company. Right. And you have to have a really good idea on how, on, on, on what to do in this company then. Is that right? Like you need to really sell it yeah. and convince people that it's, 
going to be good. Yeah, I mean, nowadays it's more it is more explicitly company focused, but but back then, back then they took people wanted wanted to independent research. So probably the most famous and successful person who entered the Teal Fellowship and went down the independent research route was Christopher Ola, who was a good friend in my year. And when he first joined, he wanted to write uh, 3D printing software and to use citizen journalism. He had a friend who became infamous for um, taking pictures of the G20 conference in Toronto, showing how a lot of security measures were just a security theater. Some people did not <laughs> like that. He got accused of terrorism <laughs> and went went through absolute hell for several well, years. Uh, so Chris was doing a lot of citizen journalism on, on that. Uh, so, but you know, in the process of doing this and having all this time for not being in school, he joined a Neuronets reading group in late 2012. And today, he's one of the most famous Neuronets researchers as a co-founder of Anthropic. That's amazing. That's really cool. I was thinking, I also remember at this blog post about abstraction and not being what, what you think when you said about the, the, the existential mm -hmm. types. Um, could you give us a little bit of, a, of an idea of, of how cumbersome maybe the idea of abstraction is in computer science and, and how you know, people talk about things that maybe they think is an abstraction, but it's not, things like that? Yeah, so abstraction is an idea where I think there's a very elegant and very crisp answer to what abstraction is. It answers all the questions and has all the intuition. And it's been around for 45 years, and yet it's still not very well known. Uh, so an abstraction, an abstraction is a mapping from some more complicated domain to some simpler domain where you're able to do some of the operations in the simpler domain and still get precise results. Uh, so the most trivial example often used in textbooks is um, that uh, take a real number to its floor. So you can say the number with this abstraction, this mapping, the number four represents all real numbers between 4.0 and 4.999. Uh, repeating, uh, and then when you when you add two of these things, like you add you add four plus itself, you get a number between eight eight inclusive and ten exclusive, and it's still pretty precise. It still carries most of the information of actually doing the, the addition in the reals, but it's easier. And so, it's, but it, it's kind of weird to say that it, that's like integers and abstract real numbers because the information is actually in the relation in that mapping that I just mentioned. So when you, so you say something like a file system is an abstraction for the hard disk. That kind of irks me because uh, like a file is a new concept that you created that actually has its own data structure associated with it concretely. They're like separate from how a hard disk works. It's like it's its own thing. But what is true is that when you do when you do file operations, like you read and write, create files, that could correspond to a large number of low-level actions on on the disk or on a server or or in memory, anything you put behind a file system. And each of the mappings between these low-level operations 
that you know that implement it. And but and the basic operation of here is open read write and the relations and behaviors it should follow. That mapping is the abstraction. And why are interfaces not abstractions? Or maybe they are. I don't know. It seems like there's a little bit. There's a little bit of discussion in the field. <laughs> so, oh. so it's it can be useful shorthand if you know what you're t- if you understand what I'm trying to explain right now. But it's always a grammatical type error to say that this thing is an abstraction if that thing is like something you have in your code because the abstraction is a mapping between the abstract and the concrete domains. So you could say that there is an abstraction. The more hard to say is to say it like there is an abstraction between these data structure implementation and its and its interface. Right. You know, it's like like when I'm pushing onto a stack, that's an abstract operation, and it's implemented by like incrementing certain counters and moving some pointers. But but if you just say but it's kind of a misnomer to say like the stack itself is is the abstraction, with without saying what's like without saying. Uh, to put some abstraction for, but even still, like the interface, that's also like a code file. Okay, we'll see. Let's see, like the interface and abstract concepts. We see the like the interface as you go into Java or TypeScript, you write interface st- stack open brace. It's like that's a piece of your code. It's a, it's its own thing that you can use. It's not it exists. It's concrete. It's not <laughs> it's not a, out abstract in the ether. But it seems for me then that say Java abstract classes are an abstraction somehow of of, of the the actual implementation, right? In a sense. Um. So as I said, like there take the abstract take the abstract idea of an interface, the mathematical idea of an interface, as a bundle of operations with certain with certain laws, but how they're supposed to behave. And. Then there should be a mapping from your implementation to that, where you know where certain where certain uh, operations could correspond to a, ver- a number of different concrete behaviors, but you can still ta- make predictions about what it should do based purely on the method calls or the abstract effects. It's like yeah, that's an abstra- that's an abstraction, uh, but you don't get that automatically every time you write the word gotcha. abstract in Java. Gotcha. Right. Right. I see. I like I like that definition of making things going from us for us going to a simpler domain. I think it reminds me a little bit uh, of another episode that we had about the notational semantics, you know, like versus operational semantics, things like that. Because that's kind of, if I understand correctly, I'm not I don't know that much about the, about the notational semantics, but I feel like that's kind of the idea is taking something from a hard domain and then denote it in a simpler domain and work from there oh in a way i am also not studied initial semantics is a topic that's fallen out of yeah. paper uh but my main exposure to it comes from reading olin shiver's thesis uh the one that def- that invented control flow analysis as we understand it today uh, and so he defines his language with an app with a denotational semantics and like because it basically felt like an operator semantics in disguise <laughs> like he had right. like he had his lisp and then he had like lists with math notation and it works the same and the denotational semantics is like a mapping from lists to lists of math notation and like this, I don't, <laughs> this, like this, what, do, what do you get from this <laughs> yeah yeah the notational semantics is 
again, I don't know all that much about it, but it seems to be to be hard, to be hard, a hard subject, and you really have to understand what's going on. I don't know, but anyways, um, I I think I've covered everything that I I wanted to cover in this, and I would like to ask, how can people find you and um, if they are interested in hiring you, what should they do? Things like that. Sure. So, it's, uh, yeah, so I run Mirdin, M-I-R-D-I-N. We are the code quality company, and we do advanced trainings for developers who want to prove in cer certain ways, especially ways to get a deep skill that help them all kind of soft engineering and are not tech-specific. Uh, so our, ma our main product is, is a web course. Our next cohort starts in May 4th. You can go to mirden.com and check it out. And we're also in the process of launching our new self-service offering. So if I sound good, I you know I might like to think it's kind of a nice voice, but it's probably just because I have a nice microphone. The reason is which it's been hard at work recording really polished lectures for the web course. And uh, we're also starting some work on some AI tutors to help give you really good feedback for exercises. So... You have that to look forward to. Uh, and you, you can find my blog at pathsensitive.com, P-A-T-H, pathsensitive, S-E-N-S-I-T-I-V-E.com, where I write about uh, all kinds of software design topics and sometimes other things. I was surprised when Pedro brought up Source of Power, which is before I started writing about software design. It was my first successful blog post. I think got to number two in Hacker News for a while. Uh, no. But also of Mina.com, you should subscribe to our newsletter, Arch Engineer, where we have a lot of really good contents every month that it does not make it into the blog. So let's, let's see. So uh, when I, I had a recent one about applying the five whys uh, to when you have a hard day, day of coding, things much harder than it should, to getting a lot of insights. And I'm working on one right now. It says... Uh, it's taking a really good blog post by Bob Harper called Models Matter the Most, which is his take on the interface implementation boundary. Uh, but I'm re basically rewriting it to be much more understandable to a wider audience who doesn't already know off the top of their head uh, how ML modules work and how type classes aren't are different and can read type through notation and all that stuff that Bob Harper just likes to take for granted. I really like the idea of of emails what's the name the email new newsletter i think we should arch engineer right? i think we should do that more i should i think should have more people doing that because i think that the level of of noise that we get in social media is just so high nowadays you know like to get something interesting out of twitter or reddit is just have to go through so much trash yeah well your wish is granted because a lot of people and a lot of engineers have newsletters now you know so i'm very happily subscribed to Hilla Wayne's with uh, computer things. It's uh, he's now doing it six times a month and is off Twitter to focus more on the nice. newsletter. And it's about uh, it's basically whatever he wants. So, so uh, he writes about things such as um, like the history of interview questions, or you can do certain tasks in an hour instead of a day. Uh, or some new new features of TLA plus his main thing. Uh, inscribed to a handful of others. So Jeremy something who writes about the applications of math and programming. 
There is uh, Eric Norman's, which I know his is popular. I'm not subscribed to it, but I just know that he I just basically know because one of his articles was summarizing one of my articles. So uh, there are a bunch of people. Oh, I think I think I lost connection for a little bit. Hmm. Very well, in any case, uh, you're going to say anything else or you were finished? No, that's uh, had a great time today. Thanks for having me on. And I send listeners. I, so I hope got the opportunity to uh, talk to you. And- yeah, it was, it was a really nice conversation. Thank you so much for being the show. I'm sure everyone has enjoyed it as much as I did. And, um, don't forget, people who are listening, that all everything that we talked here is going to be in the links in the description of this show. So see you guys next time. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Well, that was it for today's conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed it and learned as much as I did. It was a really nice conversation. Jimmy is super smart and very knowledgeable in his field. If you want to hire his services, you know where to find him. All those links will be in the description. Now, you guys probably noticed that my the quality of my sound wasn't that great. <laughs> when I finally have a guest who has a really good mic, my mic is not great. And that's because I just lost the cable of my microphone and I couldn't I couldn't get it. I've been moving around in Brazil and things are just really chaotic in my life right now. So I really apologize for this. Um, I hope it will not happen again, but I, I can't really promise. <laughs> but, but things still went very well. His microphone was great. And I was just there to to ask those those questions. So things were were all right. Well, without out of the way, if this is your first time listening to this podcast and you liked it, send it to a friend. It will help us a lot. Send us an email at typetheoryforall at gmail.com. Like us, like us at on Twitter at it for all. Leave us a comment in our website, typetheoryforall.com. We are always so happy when we have comments. It means people are listening and are enjoying things right most importantly don't forget to pay me a coffee at ko-fi dash type theory for all i really like coffee so i would really appreciate that and it's just a coffee come on you're not that poor show some support to the one of the few type theory podcasts to alive come on you can do this now if this is not your first time and you haven't supported that come on shame on you and did you guys see that I've been posting a lot of th- of memes on Twitter now? I've been spending some time to think about memes. I'm having a great time. They're so funny to do. Make sure to go there, look at those memes, and send to your friends. If you have some me- memes idea, also send to me. I will be very happy to make a meme out of your idea, or just send the meme out straight, and I'll I'll retweet or or anything. That's just that's just feel the internet and Twitter with something joyful and not those hateful comments that you see on Twitter all the time, right? Anyways, I think that's what that's what I have for you guys today. So I'll see you next time. <laughs>